0: Welcome to Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we'll be talking to some real life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and maybe even feelings of hopelessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. Joining me now is Dr. Emily Hobson. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I have a few questions for you. Um, I know that you live in Reno, Nevada. Uh, I know that you are a professor in the history department and the gender, race, and identity new department uh, at the University of Reno, Nevada. And I know you're originally from Southern California. And I know that full disclosure, you are also my spouse. And we've been together for Fifteen years, um, so can I interview you? Yes, you may. Okay. Thank you for having me. All right, let's do this. Um, can you describe briefly what your life was like before the COVID nineteen pandemic really uh, took shape to what we know it to be now, and uh, and then what is it like this second in your life? So, what was it like before shelter in place? isolation, that sort of stuff, and, and what is it like for you now, both as an individual person, and also really in your, in your work life as a professor at the local university?
1: So, you know, I, as you said, I'm a professor at University of Nevada, Reno. And um, so my life before was teaching and working on research and going to lots of meetings. Uh, and trying to go to a lot of campus events as much as possible. Uh, Also, you know, just trying to live a full life, Um, seeing friends, going to the gym, getting outside, and also trying to stay as connected as possible to activist work, although I often find that that my time really is very constrained. I would say now, in general, many of the expectations are the same. I'm still teaching, but now doing it online. Uh, I'm still trying to get exercise, but I'm doing it not at a gym and avoiding people on the running path as if they scare me because their germs do. Uh, And I'm having maybe even more meetings than before, but all by Zoom.
0: Does that make them more efficient?
1: Sometimes. It also makes them much more full of personal and emotional check-ins, which I often find to be something that generally gets neglected in academic work, um,
0: but what is, but is important. What, is, what does that sound like? Like, what does an emotional check-in during a work meeting sound like?
1: You know, go around, what are, what are some feelings right now? you know, what are three things you're feeling right now? I I did that in one department meeting yesterday, and I did it in a class check-in with students today.
0: And you, you, before the pandemic, that that wasn't something that you, was a regular thing in the department meetings. How are you feeling? What three things are you feeling right now that that wasn't a regular norm?
1: Not at all. And, you know, before I went into grad school and became a professor, uh, I worked in social justice movement work, um, you know, employed through nonprofits, um, and also, you know, involved um, on a more, you know, volunteer basis in in a lot more organizations. And in those spaces, those kinds of check-ins were much more a significant part of the work, because the, you know, movement work is about relationship building, organizing is about relationship building. And I think that Uh, In academic context, there's this emphasis on being professional. And, you know, as you said, I'm affiliated in two departments, history and gender, race, and identity. And gender, race, and identity is a little bit more open to that kind of culture of relationship building. Um, But it's also one of the reasons that our work is dismissed as frivolous or is about emotions and processing and not about scholarship. Uh, So sometimes there's a pushback against trying to institute practices like that, even in a space like the GRI department, because because of the way it's perceived as light or fluffy or girly or not important. Um, but I think that now there's a bit more space for that. Uh, I'm curious if it'll continue.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're bringing up a particular element, sort of a behind the curtain reveal that I don't think that many of us, including myself, really, really think about on the day to day, right? Like, why don't we do this? What's behind not, um, you know, instituting or, um, you know, making a, a habit and a norm of asking about us as people and doing some work in the relationship building, I mean, these are these are colleagues. This is a department. This is a university. If people don't have relationships as coworkers, as colleagues, in a particular environment, um, it makes it really hard to to move things to, together as a group. No,
1: I think that there's a assumption and usually a practice of building those relationships outside of spaces like meetings. So I think the.
0: All oh, the the joy of the happy hour
1: The joy of the happy hour, the joy of the conversation in the hallway, the joy of having some colleagues who are close friends and others who are you know very friendly acquaintances. I think that there's a feeling that we have too much time spent in meetings, and so we don't want to spend time, and that's another reason for kind of resistance to that kind of relationship building. The assumption that any important relationship building would happen outside of the meeting or happens informally in the meeting, but isn't kind of instituted as a practice through something like a check-in, you know, how are you doing? Also in the classroom, I only rarely have check-ins like that you know, usually only in a small class, or when there's a major, very difficult event.
0: Which, lucky you, there have been so many in the last couple of years, academically speaking.
1: Yes, and even then, you know, if it's a larger, even even sort of medium-sized class, to actually go around and do a full kind of conversation with every single person, mm. it it is it is important, but it is very time-consuming. And... Our class meetings are not long. There's so much we're trying to pack in. And I think I probably am more open to instituting that kind of practice than some faculty because I'm comfortable with it, because I was comfortable with it before my work as a professor. But, you know, it probably is seen as kind of loony for some.
0: So past practice, pre Corona, which could be PC or uh, pre-COVID. No, no, uh, pre uh, before Corona. BC, yeah, BC, and after Corona. AC. Okay, got it. Or or COVID. I mean, they're both with a C, so it works for us either way. So prior to 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 all this, not a lot of feelings, not a lot of check-ins about how are you one to one doing, and now more of that. Um, having maybe shorter uh, meetings, things that are maybe um, not as long as they used to be when they were in person and, and how, what's going on in your classroom besides also these, these uh, touch points on how people are feeling. Uh, Are people still going to class? Describe what your curriculum and syllabus and, you know, mid semester change has been like for you.
1: So I had to, completely revamp my class. And, and right now I'm very lucky um, in terms of this transition in that I'm only teaching one class this semester. Usually I teach two, but because of some um, slightly greater uh, responsibilities to uh, one of the departments, I am just teaching one. And so I had to fully revamp the course syllabus. Normally the course is built around, it has about Uh, between 25 and 30 students and the course is built around a combination of kind of short lecture presentations for me and then a lot of discussion and discussion of the broad themes I'm bringing up, discussion of readings and also after spring break students were going to be beginning to develop their own independent research projects and the course is um, an upper division history course addressing the history of social justice movements in the United States. And I had dev- designed it to um, allow students and com- kind of encourage students to use the special collections in the UNR library. So to really get into archival materials and look at things directly and look at original sources and look at all kinds of viewpoints in those sources and and you know take a particular theme and research it the way that
0: we do as historians. What would be an example of an item that is in the archives that students might have been interacting with uh, before?
1: So in the first unit of the class, we looked at histories of student protest um, in the sixties and seventies in the United States. And then we honed in on um, student protests at UNR in that era. And so items in the collections included Um, records of the Friends of SNCC group at UNR. So SNCC was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Um, very, very important movement in the civil rights movement, the Black Freedom Struggle, um, important in uh, leading sit-ins, in participating in the Freedom Rides, in organizing college students um, around the United States, but particularly in the South, and in leading the um, Mississippi Freedom Summer Uh, which uh, was an effort at voter registration in Mississippi, really um, important organization. And in the North and in the West, there were a network of groups called Friends of SNCC uh, that supported SNCC's work in the South and that were a way to recruit um, students from outside the South into the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project and more broadly to kind of get
0: national support. So so was there a physical letter that students got to see and and did they just get to there see it were, or they got to they got to touch it there
1: were multiple there were multiple files in unr spe, special collections uh, from a different couple different collections that reflect the work of Fredens of Snick at unr and so letters included a letter from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to uh, the president of the university um, in 1965, encouraging him to support the work of Friends of SNCC um, in that year. They included also opposition research um, or opposition statements from groups such as the American Legion and also the Dean of Students at UNR um, criticizing SNCC as being actually a violent organization, even though they had a stated
0: um, commitment to nonviolence. The yeah. so so. Let me let me ask you a question. So, these are paper materials by and large. I'm assuming there's also some photographs and such. What does it matter, or what change is there when you get to actually see them? And see them in, in 3D, right? In real life, versus a, a one-dimensional image that's scanned in. What does it mean? What's the difference in the experience as a historian? What do you get to notice and see that might be different when you actually get to, with your hands, touch these items? And and did the students get to touch these items? And, and did they have to wear gloves? These kinds of things, like what would be the difference? And if you could walk us through like exactly what they did besides just no that they were in the archive? How were students physically interacting with them? And what's the importance of that? So anyone can
1: actually do this. You don't have to be a student at UNR to go into UNR Special Collections Um, if if they're open. (laughs) Right now, you cannot access them, but um, you go into uh, a a very nice reading room, um, research room, on the third floor of the main library at UNR, the Knowledge Center, and uh, there's a wonderful set of librarian staff, and you would go through um, a finding aid of a particular collection, or you would do, you know, you'd start to figure out what you're looking for um, Mm -hmm. through a process of research through the the UNR um, library website. And then you would request a particular box out of a collection. And in that box, look at, Whatever folders interest you Um, You don't have to wear gloves um, At UNR, some archival Collections, you have to wear these little white cotton Gloves and you have to put everything away At UNR, um, the Rules are kind of in the middle of strictness You can only have pencil, but you can Have your computer, you can have a phone, all these Things, these are all rules to protect Are they in like protective sleeves? They're in archival boxes, which are paper Heavy cardboard boxes, but that Are of a particular um, grade Of paper that is acid-free so it protects the paper from deteriorating too much, and it protects it from heat and light. And then they're all held in this giant vault um, in the middle of the the knowledge center that requires a robot to remove the um, the, the, the appropriate boxes. Yeah. So you request a box, and it comes out, and and you look at it on a big, you know, table, and um, you go through it, and you can take notes, you can take pictures
0: of the. Um, pieces of paper is is anyone sort of like around you guarding them watching you what you're doing with them like what if somebody went in and and decided I don't want this to be archived so I'm mm-hmm. going to rip it up and destroy it or I'm going to take it I believe there was a whole movie in a book based on mm-hmm. this
1: yeah there are library staff I don't experience it to be an intense level of surveillance but I'm also not trying to do any of those things. So yes, they are library staff and uh, one of the reasons that you have to make the request and then they track what you're looking at is so that they can ensure that nothing gets taken that might be of value and somebody wants to sell it or somebody wants to take it away because they don't like it being there. That definitely does happen in archives.
0: Um, So what does it matter that you can do this when these are all probably scanned and you can just look these up um, online and find a picture of it? Why not just do that?
1: Well, first of all, they're not all scanned. Some of them are digitized and available uh, digitally through the UNR Special Collections site, Um, but that's a huge... Undertaking in terms of labor, Um, Mm. so the librarians have not had the staffing capacity to digitize everything. It takes a very long time because everything has to be done, you know, carefully and individually, uh, and then written up, you know, and like annotated. Um, So what I think is really unique is that you're you're touching it, you know, you're you're touching it with your own hands. You're seeing it with your own eyes um, you can see things like the quality of the paper and if it's handwritten you know whether it looks like it was written with a shaky you know hand or like a really forceful kind of hand Um, was the mlk
0: letter written in script or was it typed
1: the mlk letter was a form letter that was sent Uh to uh as far as i can tell sent to you know dozens or hundreds of university presidents um was around the country. It was signed and I believe it was signed by hand. It uh-huh. looks signed by hand to me. Um, uh, so a form letter but but with a signature. Um, some other examples include, you know, um you know you can see the the actual you can see, for example, how things were filed. So, like, what was collected together? You know, what sort of like the friends or associates of this particular document? Um, how were people thinking about things in relationship to each other? You can see the kind of material culture of, in this case, organizing. So, you know, they weren't using social media. They weren't using the internet. They didn't have personal computers or printers. Mm. They were running, if they were running a flyer, they're running it on mimeograph, which um, for folks who remember it, it has this weird distinct smell um, it comes out it's cold. It's a beautiful
0: inky smell. Yeah. It's like a purpley blue. It's a
1: purpley blue. It comes out kind of cold oh, off yeah. the mimeograph machine. This is like a pre-Xerox technology. Actually,
0: no, this is an alternative to Xerox. Um, oh, I was yeah, a, a yeah, K through K-12 right. teacher and um, still today in mm-hmm. several uh, K-12 through 12 schools across the country, maybe even across the world, there's a machine called a Duplo mm-hmm. machine. And um, uh, a Xerox copy machine takes a picture Mm -hmm. and then basically puts the picture over and over and over again on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. A Duplo machine is much like the old... machines that had like a purpley ink on them when you would run a credit card through the machine mm-hmm, and go mm-hmm. crack crack and it sort of scrapes mm-hmm. the numbers mm-hmm. um or if you've ever gotten a tattoo mm-hmm. and they want to see what the tattoo outline would look like on your body to like trace it and give you a sense of what it's going to look like on your body that kind of ink is that ink. So the duplo machine it takes the picture of it onto the ink, it makes a stamp. Instead of a picture, it's a stamp. And so it stamps over and over and over again. And they're cheaper machines and they're easier to maintain mm-hmm. than a Xerox. So, yeah.
1: So you, listeners can tell, you know, some of the th- ways- Nerd that, alert. Yeah, nerd alert on, uh, you know- Paper. Paper and office supplies and, and the ephemera also of activism. I mean, I, I think it tells us a lot about the day-to-day experience I also think that um, you know one of the things I love to encourage students to first research when when they're conducting research is to look at the entire like let's say you're looking for newspaper coverage of a particular event, and mm-hmm. um, an example of that would be coverage in the campus paper right um, uh, it's great to be able to quickly search and find a particular article that's important. Let's say you're interested in how people reported on um, you know, the, the death of Fred Hampton, right? Okay. Finding obituaries or finding articles about um, his uh, assassination that I think you only want those articles. Right. Mm -hmm. But, If you're really kind of digging into, for example, you know, campus activism and you're trying to put in context particular events in relationship to the whole campus culture, if you can look at the campus newspaper and think about, okay, so what else was going on, Mm. you know, what was being covered uh, in addition to the particular thing you're looking for. What were the other political issues? What were the other social things going on? You know, were these things getting a lot of attention? What were the advertisements like, right? So if you look at the entire thing, you really get such a rich sense of context. You learn so much, just even from looking at one particular issue of a newspaper, you know, you can write pages and pages about what's going on. So basically,
0: imagine you're going to buy a car and you go to the dealership and the only thing you look at is the hood. And you say, I'm just looking at hoods today because that's really going to give me an idea Yeah, my of favorite the kind thing of is hood design. that I want. Yeah. So, so you're talking about zooming out mm-hmm. when doing historical research mm-hmm. because the relationship and the context of any given issue and event mm-hmm. is actually incredibly informative mm-hmm. to really understanding that one event. So mm-hmm. you can't really understand one thing without looking at everything that it is in relationship to. So, Dr. Hobson, what do you think is going to be put in the box or boxes in the special collections at UNR about this time right now with COVID-19 and a pandemic and a first time for the university to close it all down for the safety of everyone? What can you imagine is going to be in that box?
1: Well, actual physical objects that exist right now, you know, might include signs that are on all the campus buildings right now about why they're locked and, you know, that only faculty or staff with with keys to particular offices can come in um, or perhaps any other kind of signage that might exist. Maybe photographs of what social distancing in the library looks like because there are still some areas of the library open for access to students um, who, who need the library as their only way to access a computer or the internet or to complete work. Um, but a lot of it, of course, is going to have to be archived through, you know, emails and websites and all of that. Uh, I am I would like to know more about how we archive the history of the present, you know, through internet sites, which are constantly changing. I know that there are people who work on that, but that is gonna have to be the bulk of the archive because of the ways that we're so reliant on the internet for those kinds of uh, records now. And then I would say also, you know, if people record, Classes, class meetings, mm. right? That would be part of the archive. Mm-hmm. If
0: there are the mask, the N ninety five mask, the mask, so the gloves, so the,
1: the the yeah. container
0: of Lysol wipes, right? Um, the
1: newspaper coverage of particular events, like the UNR student who has organized the uh, shopping angels, right? What's, to, what's shopping? Angels? Shopping angels is a project to. Uh, get groceries and other needs for uh, people who cannot go to stores right now. So elderly people, people who are immunocompromised, that's a project that a UNR student has created and has now become, I believe, a nationally global model. Um, Records of, you know, Washoe Food Not Bombs, which includes a number of um, recent and um, current students um, active in it or other kinds of mutual aid efforts that are happening. And
0: because we just talked about things being relational and contextual with other things happening at the time to really understand, what would you say are the top four things that come to mind that you would think as a historian to really mark this moment that you would want to see included as stories as pieces to things that are also in relationship to what's happening right now what else has been going on locally in reno or on the unr campus that puts this moment in a wider broader more full context for future folks
1: well as one person uh put it in, in one of my meetings today, you know, earlier this academic year, we were dealing with the virus of white nationalism mm. and now we're dealing with COVID-19. Uh, they're distinct but possibly interrelated problems. Um, and I say that not, not as a way to foster some kind of conspiracy theory about the source of the virus or something like that, but to say that, a uh, lack of leadership to address, both problems, Mm. right, Um, there are links between those kind of failures of leadership, as well as links between the real grassroots leadership that has been shown um, by all kinds of different um, activists, and in the case of UNR, students, faculty, and certainly, um, you know, some, some in administration, right, to address
0: both problems. Um, it's a real interesting relationship that you're that you're making here because both um the virus the pandemic because it has been worldwide pandemic of of white supremacy and uh covid nineteen both have very similar um responses isolation um keeping distance um maybe not wanting to have or fearing physical contact yeah. um being very watchful and mindful and observant of who you're around and your location?
1: And I would say not, the
0: comparisons I
1: would draw would be the fear of collective justice, the fear of collective liberation, right? White nationalism is a reaction against change that is perceived to be a threat to white supremacy, right, and to um, the all the other systems that are interrelated with it—patriarchy, heterosexism, you know, rampant capitalism—and uh, and obviously, you know, all other forms of racial injustice, right, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, et cetera, Islamophobia, uh, and we have solutions to those problems. We have them both in the past and we have them in the current moment. And they are in many ways similar kinds of solutions that we have to some of the worst effects of COVID-19. I mean, there's a difference between an actual vaccine and a healthcare system. Right. But a healthcare system can provide a vaccine. Right. And, uh, you know, more social welfare supports for people, you know, spending on our social needs rather than only on a kind of security state. Sure. 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 Right. Can help us address the effects of COVID-19 and can also start to show people that that kind of fearful reaction that propels some people into white nationalism isn't necessary. We have the things we need in the society. We just need to share them better, like toilet paper, like toilet paper, and many, many other things, right? Um, So, you know, of course, I'm speaking as
0: I myself
1: to- right and not oh, wait, as a that, representative that got me
0: thinking toilet paper needs to be in that archival box yes I want somebody years from now to open up the COVID-19 archival box at UNR and say why in the world is there a roll of toilet paper in here or an empty toilet paper just the just the cardboard part in the center right. um I want to I want to move you on to something personal um let me, let me see if, if you're ready to move on.
1: Well, I want to say that, I mean, of course, I'm speaking as an individual and not as a representative of UNR officially, but I'm also speaking as a historian, you know, which is a job I have at the university, but which is who I am, regardless of where I am. Do you see what I'm saying? So unfortunately, I'm, I
0: live with you. So yes, I see and feel what you're saying all the time. Once a historian, always a historian.
1: Yes, and also, you know, that that's that's one of the reasons that I don't speak for UNR is that this is my commitment, no matter what, is mm. to think about the past, to think about change over time, and in particular because of what I'm interested in is at heart the history of of social movements um, and of social change is to try to identify you know, what made a particular movement happen, what made it work, what, you know, helped it, what, what harmed it, and what lessons, of course, can we draw out, right, for the present. So I think it's, it's important to, to kind of say that, right, that this is um, my response, right, to COVID-19 is, is part of my exercise of, of intellectual freedom, which I think is part of you know, a fundamental freedom that we all have.
0: So there's been this thing going around the last, um, last week and a half, and there's kind of a debate. Uh, there are some stories and, and articles out there about lessons we can learn from the HIV and AIDS epidemic um, to apply them to now. And then also a really big community pushback mm-hmm. of this is so not like that moment because the attention that the whole world is getting right now is not the attention that we originally got when HIV and AIDS was at its sort of you know big catastrophic levels, and so there are two sides to it. there are lessons here, and no there are not lessons. please stop comparing it in the same way it's very different. What are you seeing as some fundamental um, really you know wise and um, inspiring and informative points that either side is making right now. I'm not asking you to pick a side. Mm-hmm. I'm merely asking you to, to very quickly and briefly let us know what the two sides really are mm-hmm. and what you think are some important points on either side for us to really hold during this time.
1: Well, one thing I'd say is that things don't have to be the same for us to draw lessons from them. Right? They can be different. Um, I think that some of the ways that HIV, AIDS, and COVID-19 are different um, include speed uh, and the ways that it is so clearly dispersed, right? So speed meaning COVID-19 is spreading extremely rapidly, much more rapidly than HIV and AIDS spread. Although I think that that might go missing from public awareness because for many people who were especially kind of outside immediately affected communities, uh, aid seemed to be big already by the time they knew about it, right? But it actually rolled out over, you know, a period of few years before the kind of so-called mainstream really began to respond, right? Mm-hmm. At least four years that we knew that there was something that people began to call AIDS before uh, 1985 when um, the case of Rock Hudson really kind of won significant national attention. And, and before that, it US. was
0: referred to as a, as a gay cancer, a cancer yes, that was affecting right. the gay community. Right,
1: so the first reports of what came to be called AIDS were observed in 1981. And initially in 1981, 82, it was being called gay-related immune disease or GRID. That was the official Name and uh, more colloquially, it was being referred to as a gay cancer. Uh, and now, in reality, it was affecting um, not only gay men, right? Um, but certainly, predominantly being observed and, and, and responded to among gay men, right? And so, that very much shaped the ways that it was dismissed, that it was not paid attention to. Um, And then as uh, other kind of communities began to become more visible to more and more people, then it wasn't, okay, so it wasn't just gay men, it was the 4-H club. It was homosexuals, Haitians, uh, hemophiliacs, right, and heroin users. So four groups, three of whom were all very much so dismissed and marginalized um, in and U.S. and stigmatized in
0: U.S. and in global, global um, you know reactions. But but that's but that's fascinating that you, that you're actually bringing that up because that has actually been my biggest um, issue with how COVID nineteen has been also narrowly framed and mm-hmm. focused on a very particular community, the quote elderly mm-hmm. community. And, we're, and yeah. yeah. And so then, what it does when you be when you're so narrow. In saying it only affects, or right now it 's mm-hmm. really only at danger for these communities, then everybody who's not in that community doesn't feels immune to it and doesn't mm-hmm. care and If we would have talked about grid mm-hmm. or talked about this immune disease as something that is affecting all of us, mm-hmm. which is pretty much where we 're at and moving towards right now with COVID-19, it started out with the elderly, Mm -hmm. then we're starting to see now all these other younger folks we we just learned about today in Los Angeles, a teenager Mm -hmm. who passed away from it. So now that that frame of who are the characters in the story of who are the victims is getting broader and wider and more and more inclusive, because it always was Mm -hmm. but at least now the reporting and the dire moments are now being inclusive of folks that are much wider and such bigger uh, in population it it's like we didn't learn our lesson that you don't say who it's affecting because you say it's affecting all of us Mm -hmm. Because that sort of individuality of, oh, the neighbor got sick, but that's the neighbor, not me. Mm -hmm. Oh, the neighbor got beat up by a white supremacist, but not me.
1: Right. I mean, and that gets us to one of the really important connections between COVID-19 and HIV AIDS, which is that one thing we really know about HIV AIDS by now is that it tracks with every form of inequality in the society. What does that mean? So, well, another way to put this is uh, the artist, Zoe Leonard um, has one of kind of my favorite lines about this. um, And I I really highly recommend the documentary United in Anger as um, a way to get some insight into the history of ACT UP, which is the best known um, AIDS activist organization in the 1980s um, and 90s, which is still active today. Mm -hmm. The AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Um, united in anger it's especially focused on act up in new york city and in that regard um, really um, sheds a lot of light onto the ways that um, the aids epidemic kind of rolled out in this urban context of new york city and how people responded and how people saw it interrelated with inequality zoe leonard says you know it was a lens into every inequality into the society every way that the society wasn't working and what i mean by that is you know HIV disease is a disease of immune, the immune system, right? That's what HIV is, the human immunodeficiency virus. AIDS is acquired immune deficiency syndrome, right? One can be HIV positive and not be diagnosed with AIDS. And so that's one of the reasons we use this broader term, HIV disease. Um, And HIV disease is measured by one's viral load. So how much of the virus do you have kind of circulating in your body? The higher your viral load, the more likely you are to become sick with opportunistic diseases. And more, not more importantly, but equally importantly, the, more, the higher your viral load, the more likely you are or the more able you are to transmit the virus to another person through all the points of contact that exist, blood, semen. Uh, and uh, breast milk being the principal um, bodily fluids that really are significant for HIV transmission. You know, it's, it's observed in very low levels in saliva and uh, vaginal fluid, but really we're talking about blood, semen, yeah, and breast milk. Yeah. Um, and so that means uh, unprotected sex, it means sharing needles. Um, Those are kind of two really principal forms of transmission. So the higher your viral load, the sicker you get, and the more you can transmit it to others. And also, there are kind of two factors that shape viral load uh, and that shape transmission. One is something that Linda Villarosa calls community viral load. Right. So the more that your sort of network, maybe your sexual network or your community network more broadly, the higher the prevalence of HIV in your community, the more likely you are to get HIV um, and also to become ill because more and more opportunistic diseases are circulating. Also, all of that means that your overall access to health care and your community's overall access to health care affect rates Of HIV disease. So that's why now, even though we have very effective antiretroviral um, medications to keep HIV disease in check in a person who is living with HIV, you know, the still rates of new infection and and, uh, the overall effects of the epidemic are highest in poor communities, in communities of color. In the U.S., in particular, among African Americans, and especially African Americans in the South, because these are states that have been the most resistant to the implementation of Medicare, for example, right? Um, So places where there isn't health care, AIDS shows up more, right? And, um, and HIV AIDS, disease shows up more.
0: And HIV and AIDS isn't gone. It isn't eradicated. It is in no way over. We do right? not have a vaccine. All these recent stories about people who are showing no signs and they have a cure, it's because they were trying to cure other things. Everyone isn't going to be able to get a bone marrow transplant. Right. Right. And so we're talking about a the, disease. The, the cure, the cure,
1: the cure is, you know, a system that
0: doesn't allow it to flourish. Right, but, but we're talking about a, a virus that came into the planet, the country, and, and really became a, a pandemic, if you will, 40 years ago. More than. And, and in more than 40 years, we still have no vaccine. We still have no cure. And we're talking about a brand new pandemic that is less than six months old. Right. Yeah.
1: And I think that, you know, one other connection that I hope to imagine between COVID-19 and HIV AIDS and also other pandemics and epidemics like smallpox is people's resilience in fighting it. So, you know, the rate, the R-naught rate, uh, meaning the rate of a given case of a person with COVID-19, you know, how many new people they might infect has been described as being between 2 and 2.5. It's a similar, it's not exactly the same, I don't think, but it's similar to the rate of smallpox, right? So think about the effects of smallpox on indigenous people in the Americas. And then also think about the resilience of indigenous people in the Americas and globally, right? And think about HIV AIDS and the ways it was ignored and denied by kind of broader publics by the government. That's a big difference, right? And yet also similar. with COVID-19, right? We're seeing a more rapid, broad public response to COVID-19 and yet still these huge pockets that wanna deny, 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 right? But uh, we're seeing that we know that, that despite all of that denial, that despite all of that kind of refusal to address HIV AIDS for so long, allowing it to become an epidemic, right? Um, you know, discouraging information about condoms as an effective form of safer sex and so forth, discouraging attention, inhibiting research, that nonetheless, we saw a massive and vibrant movement that is still ongoing, that still exists. The HIV AIDS movement is very much still alive. And it has... Found new ways of addressing the issue, the issues of the epidemic, right, in relationship to the opioid crisis, in relationship to fights for universal health care, in relationship to fights around uh, efforts to uh, to end mass incarceration, right, in efforts related to challenging big pharma, right. The HIV/AIDS movement has has been vibrant; it never went away.
0: It's we think of it. Still we
1: think of it as something in the past, or we're encouraged to think of it as something in the past. But AIDS is not over, right? All you have to do is look #hashtag AIDS is not over, and you'll find so much kind of discussion of this, right? But it also has decades of history to teach us, right, about how to work together, how to form networks of support, regardless of what's there, kind of officially. And about ways to fight, to fight, to fight, to push for research, to push for uh, you know quick implementation, to push for also a systemic change in the healthcare system that can really enable us to fight COVID-19. Because you know COVID-19 is not going to be the first and the, or the last. It is not the first, and it will not be the last pandemic light like this. I very much believe that, you know, I, I think that we can't ignore the ways that all kinds of evidence of pandemics has been observed as being connected over a number of years, connected to climate change, collected, connected to uh, issues also of just simple mobility, right? Global mobility means that pandemics spread quickly. And I have no interest in stemming global mobility in a, in a certain way because I personally love to travel. I right, right. W- believe that migration is a human right. I don't want to stem mobility. But at the same time, we have to understand that it is a risk factor for the spread of any given disease and that if new diseases are constantly mutating, as they do, right, and if we create a society that allows them to flourish then they will hurt us again.
0: You you know, uh, this entire conversation has really got me thinking about um, immune systems. Mm -hmm. And an immune system is uh, the human being's ability to stay alive by attacking outside elements that are trying to attack your body. And when you have a disease or are taking medication that compromises your immune system, right? If you have a cancer, for example, um, your immune system is not working properly. It is not able to distinguish between the outside invading harmful element and the healthy element, and your body starts to attack itself.
1: And especially then if you're doing chemotherapy, right? That right. You're, you're doubly attacking, is a, right? It's an effort. Chemotherapy is often an effort to Stop inhibit your, that yeah. kind of cancer response, but it also results in
0: you being immunocompromised. Yes. And so we have this great defense, but sometimes the defense starts attacking itself and the only way to defend that is to put in medication that stops all attacking forces to attack anything. So, if you can't distinguish the good from the bad, you kill it all, mm-hmm. and that includes the good. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about white supremacy, it feels very similar. We cannot distinguish between the good and the bad. So, Let's wait, with well, the good, what's the good part of the white supremacy? Not that white supremacy is good, but that there are some good white people. Oh well yeah, but that's different, right? I think no, that's no, no no but it's it's the same in that I, I'm a person of color. I'm a mm-hmm. queer butch gender queer identified mm-hmm. person of color. And when I walk down the street, I cannot distinguish right. the white person who's walking towards me are you the good white person? Are you the bad white person Mm -hmm. who's going to harm me? So I can't take my chances. I cross the street. Mm -hmm. I avoid you Mm -hmm. because I have to be willing to take the risk of not being able to make a new friend because I fear that you are a new enemy. Mm -hmm. And that is because of the kinds of actions that are happening at the hands of folks who are white, who are saying that we are more powerful and we should stay in more power than you ever. In fact, you're not even a human. And so I just think that there, there are some similarities to immune systems, to attacks, to who's safe and who's not, and how we got here in a very um, big and broad systemic Uh, series of institutions and incidents that were for the greater good, no, for a selective good and few to have a lot. And I, you know we've we've talked a lot about this really big thing mm-hmm. and and this is what's going to happen the more i interview academics mm-hmm. who are used to looking at big things mm-hmm. but we started out talking about something very personal mm-hmm. which is that you're in these meetings mm-hmm. that traditionally are much like the majority of this conversation mm-hmm. very big picture right. very not personal
1: or or really really small and narrow yeah. but
0: about you know yeah. important Small decisions to sure. be made, administrative sure. minutia. But the change has been about relationship building and, and right. getting personal and, and tapping into how you're feeling. So, Emily, Dr. Humpston, <laughs> has there been a time in your life, recent, past, recent past, that has dramatically altered your day-to-day your ability to envision what your future would look like Um, and, and what did you do at that time or during those hardest moments that you are tapping into right now? Like, is there anything that feels familiar Mm -hmm. that you were able to channel, use as a resource, take out of an archive box, Mm -hmm. if you will, and really look at it and say, ah, I could use you again right now. Mm
1: -hmm. I think there's been a few things that I'm calling on to get through the day to day. Um, One certainly includes that, you know, as you've said, we live together and um, you live with chronic illness. And when you were diagnosed and as we began to deal with your, treatments, that changed both of our lives pretty profoundly. Uh, And it was a really hard adjustment. Um, But in some ways right now, I'm grateful for the experience of having had to think through some very uh, scary possibilities for the future, right? Um, In terms of, of your health and its impact on me. And, uh, you know, just also the experience of being a caregiver um, is itself time consuming and learning how to reprioritize and to try to step away and move away from the idea that the only way I can measure my worth is through productivity, whether that's like academic productivity or activist productivity or, you know, how much money I make or something like that. Um, I've had to remember that I don't actually believe that those measures of productivity are my only value, right? And to fully re-internalize the awareness that other things are meaningful. Um, So I'm, I'm sort of grateful for that in this moment because I'm having, you know, where we have we're we're only here at home except when I go out, you know, to get some exercise. There's so much reproductive labor constantly that we're doing, cooking, cleaning, et cetera, to just kind of keep going. We can't just go pay for somebody to do that reproductive labor and make us dinner, you know, and clean it up and serve us and take it all away, right, and have that lovely experience of of going out, right? I also think that uh, dealing with chronic illness really compelled both of us in different ways to turn to our friends and family um, and to ask for help and that's something that's really helping me right now is we all need help you know we need to share information at minimum we need to share resources you know if you know, so we have a group of friends that we're in communication and in community with who we let each other know if we're gonna go to the store so that if there's one little thing and you couldn't find it, but you really, you know, right now so far for me, it's been like a little thing I wanted for a recipe, you know, but I could get it. Or, you know, knowing what store has TP in stock right now, right, so it's all, I feel still pretty privileged personally, in my response, um, and how things are playing out. But I'm trying to kind of think about the future and the long term and how this will get harder. And to think about how really building and, and relying on my relationships with my friends and family, and also with other community members who maybe, you know, maybe aren't friends or family I'm not Mm -hmm. that intimate with but who I want to work with and I want to organize with in the virtual ways that we can um and I want to be able to you know push our um you know local state federal governments with and also just do it together regardless right um so I've learned that from that experience of dealing with chronic illness not my own but my partners. And then I would say that also I'm a person who deals with anxiety day to day. You don't say. I, yeah, I do say. I, Does anxiety, your partner too? Yeah, I would say that anxiety is a <laughs> profound part of my life. And over time, I have realized that it is and that I need to find ways to address it. Um, and I have given up being ashamed of that. I proclaim willfully and proudly, maybe not, I may not be proud of it exactly. I don't love it, but, but I am happy to say, to tell people, to be public about it. Careful that no, I, she's
0: coming out. She's coming out again.
1: As an anxious person.
0: Oh,
1: uh, you how know, are your
0: parents going to take it?
1: Well, they're pretty anxious themselves. I came oh by it honestly. Gosh. It's a little bit different than queerness in that way, is it? I think queerness is socially constructed, and anxiety may be genetic as well as socially constructed. I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Queerness might be a little bit of both too. I I'm agnostic on that point, but uh, you know, so I have had to learn how to deal with anxiety, and I've had to learn, for example, that exercise exercise for me has become, you know, I think like every other. Person and especially people raised as girls and women, I very much approached exercise as, you know, something to lose weight. Right. I mean, on the one hand, I approached it as fun. I grew up playing soccer and like it was fun and, you know, but also it was this thing as an adult, very much so. It was a thing to lose weight. And once I started actually approaching it as a way to, address anxiety and to keep myself healthy day to day and to lessen my anxiety, it fundamentally transformed my experience of exercise. So that, well, for one, I started doing it every day. So I actually did get fitter, but also I do it not because I feel bad about myself, but because I love myself. And I do it because it brings me joy. Right now, granted, I would love to go to the gym and like get to tune out and watch Superstore while like on the elliptical and then do weights, you know, because I can feel cool that like, you know, my weights are a little heavier than they used to be, but I'm certainly much rather, you know, going to run and walk outside uh, and, and stay away from people in this current moment. And that is definitely keeping me going day to day.
0: You're giving us a ton to think about, including that so much of what you just shared, you're, you're using and incorporating right now is, is community, asking for help, uh, offering help, sharing what you need, confronting and being really honest with the things that maybe you don't want to talk about and admit and share and make room for in your life. And so here's the final question for you, Dr. Hobson, which I just love saying, by the way. So Dr. Hobson. She does love to
1: say it. She says it all the time. It's so weird.
0: All right, Dr. Hobson, how would you finish the following sentence? It's now 2025. It's five years into the future. You are now five years older than you are now. How would you finish this sentence? You find yourself at a, at a party, at a gathering, a happy hour. And you say, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually really grateful for the pandemic because at least now I or we have blank.
1: So I'll be grateful because we've done the following. First of all, we slowed it the heck down. We flattened that curve, which means we took a long time to address it while also meeting people's needs, right? So I'm not going to be grateful for deaths. I will never be grateful for deaths. And the way that we minimize deaths is by slowing it down, you know, through through things like social distancing right now, right? Really intense, you know, stay at home. That's how we slow it down. And that's how we minimize the number of people who become ill, and who who die. Because we will have people who die. We already have had people who die. We will have more. So I will be grateful when we slow it down and minimize the number of people who die. I will also, and I think this is interrelated, be grateful because we will have won universal health care. We will have won a measure of universal basic income and or some other set of social welfare needs that people need, um, including everything from, you know, greater access to food help to greater food crash benefits to greater, uh, you know, help for elderly people um, and jobs programs and a fundamental, you know, kind of rebuilding of what we need through through collective programs.
0: You do know that Bernie is currently not in the lead to win the nomination for the Democratic Party. So how- Yes, but he's winning in the court of public opinion
1: in uh, the kinds of programs people are advocating for. And I wasn't done with that list, by the way. We've won more guaranteed access to housing. We've massively reduced our reliance on jails and prisons. We have begun to take seriously the ways that climate crisis affects people's health. We have begun to notice that racism doesn't stop in a pandemic, it fuels it. We have addressed how all the issues I just named are issues of race, are issues of gender, are obviously issues of class, are issues of sexuality, are issues of citizenship, that they are all interrelated. right? So we have won in five years, that's when I'm gonna be grateful. We have kept the scale of deaths as low as possible, and we have won some of the fundamental things we all need. And I know Bernie isn't leading, but I believe that one of the things his candidacy has done is to bring more and more people into that kind of policy agenda. It's never been about him. It's not about relying on a particular candidate Right. It's about relying on multiple kinds of movements to work together to be critical of candidates, right, to engage in a critical but productive way with candidates, but also to push for the agendas. Right. So, you know, if we get Biden, but that agenda, I'm good. I don't. Do I think Biden be a good president? No. (laughs) But, you know, what I want is the agenda in any any kind of, any person's representation, I want that agenda with smart, intelligent, thoughtful,
0: collective leadership. So, you know, I'm actually pretty grateful about that pandemic because at least now we finally know what issues are most important and critical for us. And we learned that it's not the person who's in power, it's about the people who aren't. Mm -hmm. And how do we help them? Mm -hmm. Dr. Hobson, it's always a pleasure to speak to you, (laughs) to learn with you and from you.
1: Sometimes she doesn't think it's a pleasure, you guys. Sometimes she's annoyed. Sometimes I like turn off a light incorrectly and it's a whole thing. You
0: know, as it should be. Thank you so much for listening to this. Uh, this has been there, done that, your pandemic survival minute. This is Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.